go with me to the book of John, the gospel of John. We will be there together, the chapter 18. It will be on the screen behind me if you would like to follow along. It's in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, or you can just listen as the word of God washes over us together. Before we jump in, you know, there's an elephant in the room. Every pastor's got to say something. It's the, sun, it's the Sunday after the Iron Bowl. I know. I got it. I'm supposed to make some joke. I don't have one. I just know that if the church had bumper stickers, we would have the biggest house divided, Auburn and Alabama. And so I recognize that we have people lamenting and praising. The liturgical expression of our community this morning is very eclectic. And so um, I just want you to know that ultimately we can be thankful Christ is the king and we're gonna talk about it this morning. All right? All right. So we're going to the book of John. We're going to the book of John, chapter 33. We're talking about Jesus and this experience he had with Pilate. So here we go. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did you talk with others about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on this side of the truth listens to me. And Pilate responded, what is truth? This is the word of God for the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. As we get ready to jump in this morning and talk about this text and talk about our our time together, this is Christ the King Sunday. And I'm thankful that we get to be in fellowship as we celebrate that fact. And if you're not sure what Christ the King Sunday is, let's talk about it. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, that was okay. I was like, we're getting better at this. We're getting there. And all God's people said, I know we still got turkey. We still got all the food. We're still a little tired. You know, I'm proud. You're you're thinking, hey, at least I made it to church today, Woods. You should be at least, I can't give a strong amen, but I'm here. I am thankful. I am. I give thanks for that this morning. But have you ever noticed how much of the human experience is dedicated to the quest of discerning and discovering truth? Like so much of our life is built around this quest to learn and to discover new truths. I mean, it's the case throughout human history that philosophers and authors have written about people on this quest for truth. And I wonder if even more now we are plagued by this propensity to want to discern more truth. I mean, and it's not just people from the places of higher education anymore. Used to be those who were always concerned with truth finding were in the academy. Now, anybody with a smartphone can Google and find out if something's true or not. For example, I did that very thing. I typed in true facts on Google. Here's some things I did not know. Did you know that Mr. Potato Head was the first toy advertised on TV? Well, there you go. (laughs) I was not expecting that. Caught me off guard. But... Feel free to participate. It just, you know, gets us going even more. I love it. See, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm always so thankful whenever I hear that verbal, Bruce is down here, the verbal affirmation. I always know if I'm doing good. If I hear, if Bruce is quiet, I'm, I'm not doing well today. 
A duel between three people is actually called a truel. The stage um, right before frostbite is actually called frostnip. And my auto's correct. I didn't even recognize that as a word. The name for the shape of a Pringle is a hyperbolic paraboloid. There is a McDonald's in every continent except Antarctica. Sonic the Hedgehog's real name is Ogilvy Maurice Hedgehog. Bullfrogs do not sleep, and tigers have striped skin, not just striped fur, and the stripes are like fingerprints. No two tigers have the same pattern. I learned lots of new things this week from Google. There's lots of truths out there that I did not know. They were true whether I knew them not to be true, but I have now discovered these things to, in fact, be true. Other than just asking Google or Siri, we humans are constantly expending our precious time on earth trying to learn new things, to discover new truths. I mean, think about it. How much of, time, of your time do you spend reading articles or books or blog posts, whether it be about the future of the world, about technology, or about your favorite football team? And, and what is your goal in doing these activities? You're hoping to learn something. You're hoping to discover new truths. How many podcasts have you listened to? How many sermons have you heard? How many classes have you been to? How many lectures have you been stuck in? All in the quest to discern new truths. And we're doing this with each other all the time, aren't we? We're trying to learn more truths about one another. How many hours have you spent on social media looking at pictures of other people and learning things about their lives through that discernment, through those acts of discovery? How many times have you been in a conversation where you've been asking somebody, just tell me about yourself? Every date you go on is trying to learn something about somebody else to decide if you want to spend the rest of your life with this person. I mean, we're constantly trying to learn new things, learn new things about one another, learn new things about the world. And sometimes this truth-seeking is even subconscious. It's involuntary. In a way, we're learning new things even if we don't mean to. Sometimes we substitute the word truth for meaning. And so sometimes when we listen to a song, and it just moves us. We find meaning in it. We watch a sunset whenever we read poetry. Things that are not often thought of as truth-seeking experiences teach us things about life and about ourselves and about our feelings. Suffice it to say, I think the majority of our human experience is on this quest to discern new things, to discover new truths. And I think that's why the Gospel of John is so accessible and relatable to us as a book. In the Bible, there are four books called gospel, and John is unique among them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they're all pretty similar, and they're all written around the same time. Mark was written first, and then Matthew, and then Luke, and they all kind of use each other, and the, you know, they're right near where Jesus passed away after the, um, after the writings of Paul. But John was written much later. John was the last of the four Gospels to be written, and therefore, it was the most removed from the immediate context of Jesus' life. And it was produced by oral stories and hearings from people who either knew Jesus or knew people who knew Jesus, as well as the readings of the other Gospels. And thus, John provides us a very unique reflection on Jesus' life that we don't get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That doesn't make it better or worse. It's just different. That's why John's gospel, is, it's got a lot of stories in it that the other gospels don't. Now, John, in his, um, in his quest for truth, centers everything kind of through this lens of truth-seeking. 
more than anything else, the central theme throughout the book of John is understanding the discovery of truth and how Jesus is a central character in God's cosmic story and came to proclaim and reveal truth, the truth of God. I mean, John 1 says, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Later in the same chapter, Jesus tells Nathanael, you will see greater things than these. Very truly, I will tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John 3, those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. John 4 is where Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that all of these things that he's showing people, he's showing the truth. And John 8, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I could go on, but I think it's clear. This, this propensity for truth-seeking is very evident in the Gospel of John. And John cares very much about this path and discernment of what is true. And how do we understand the truth? And so our story this morning is kind of one of the quintessential encounters that Jesus has with this understanding of the nature of truth when he has this discussion with Pilate. He goes, um, right before this text is when Jesus was just arrested. After the Passover meal, Jesus gets arrested and he's taken before the Jewish leaders and they say, let's take him to Pilate. And so in order to be able to have the punishment they want Jesus to experience, they have to take him to the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate is the head honcho in Jerusalem. He's not the emperor of all of Rome. He's just a governor for this area in the ancient Near East. And in Jerusalem, though, there's no one greater than Pilate. He's the boss. He's, he's the one who gets to dispense the, what is true when it comes to crimes and punishments. And so Pilate's life, like many of ours, he's trying to do a good job. He's trying to be recognized by his bosses. Because though Jerusalem was nothing to scoff at, it was not the peak pinnacle of gubernatorial appointments. There were other places that, that Pilate aspired to get to and to go to, likely, I mean, we're reading into that a little bit. We can assume anybody in power wants more power. And typically, if you're on the, the ladder of Roman hierarchy, you're trying to move up. And so Pilate thinks, if I do a good job here, then I'll get another appointment somewhere better. And I'll keep. So he's got this in mind, and this is at play during his encounter with Jesus. Those who are the Jewish leaders, they bring Jesus before Pilate. And, and they say, and he says, what is your accusation against this man? This is right before the text we just read. He says, what is your accusation against this man? And, he's, and they said, he's a criminal and we wanted to hand him over to you. To which Pilate responds, well, why don't you just take him yourself and judge him according to, to Jewish law, to your own law? And he's trying to keep the peace. He doesn't want to be put in the middle of this. And the accusers, they make very clear their intentions. They say, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. So the reason Jesus comes to Pilate is because the Jews want Jesus to die and they don't have the authority to do it. Only Pilate does. And so that, they make their claim clear. We want you to kill Jesus for us. And so it's a fascinating encounter that happens next between Pilate and Jesus. The story we just read. Pilate straight up asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because for anyone in the, in the, within the, to, to claim their own kingship within the Roman Empire is committing a crime. It can be seen as insurrection to say that they are the king when really the emperor is the one in charge. He's the true king. And so in a way, Pilate's trying to catch them on a technicality to have a reason to justify their cause of action. But Jesus always one step ahead says, 
Do you ask this on your own or because others tell you this about me? Knowing that Pilate is trying to trip him up there. And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, your chief priests, they're the ones that handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And that's when Jesus, he kind of turns things a little bit and he says this, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to you. And Pilate's like, oh, okay, so you are a king. And he said, you said I'm a king, but it was for this that I was born. It was for this that I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate then asks, what is truth? And right after that, he takes him out and the whole conversation's over. It ends with Pilate saying, what is truth? It's a very unique encounter. What is truth? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I taught a Bible study recently in the beginning of one of the sessions. We did it three times just a couple weeks ago here. And if you were there, you would remember, I asked the question, what is truth? Who gets to decide what is true? Are some truths greater than others? Pilate asked this very question, what is truth? And so I'd like to table that question for just a second and point out a, little, a few things about this text and about this Sunday. This story is situated squarely within the passion narrative. You know, many of you know this story. This is where Jesus is arrested, tried, flawed, crucified, died, buried, rises again from the dead. And you might be thinking, why are we reading about the passion narrative, about near the death of Jesus, when it's almost Christmas time? We're about to be in the Christmas season, right? Technically, we're about to be in the Advent season. Next week begins Advent. It's the first week of Advent. And today is actually a special Sunday in the life of the church. It's called Christ the King Sunday. That's right, right there on screen. Because this is a high and holy day in the life of the church. And churches, um, not just Methodists, but lots of different traditions celebrate the liturgical calendar together. And today in the life of our church, every Sunday, this Sunday, the Sunday after Iron Bowl and the Sunday before Advent every year is always Christ the King Sunday. And we celebrate it because this day has significance in our liturgical calendar. It's the last day of the year. Our new year as a church begins next week. Advent is the first Sunday in the new year of the church. And it almost lines up with, you know, our normal January 1st new year, but not quite. It throws us off a little bit. But technically, today is like our end of the year celebration as a church. And we celebrate Christ the King Sunday as the culmination of the entire liturgical calendar for that year. It's reflective. We look back on the previous year and it's anticipatory. We look forward to Advent. That still doesn't necessarily answer the question, why this text? Why would the lectionary, which is what, it's this calendar that we use that brings out our text each week, and we don't always use it here, but in the traditional service, we use it most weeks. The lectionary provided our text this morning. I was given this text by this calendar, and as I read it, I'm thinking, why are we celebrating the trial of Jesus at the end of the liturgical year? Why, not we, why don't we read like the resurrection? Like That's pretty exciting. That's like a good ending place. Or why don't we celebrate, the, let's just read the last chapter in Revelation. I mean, it's the end of the book, might as well. But instead, we are given a unique encounter between Pilate and Jesus. And I think there's a very specific reason why. The compilers of the lectionary chose this text because it gives us the universal nature of Pilate's experience in the encounter with Jesus is applicable to all of us about the way we see the world and the way we live our lives. Consider Pilate's plight for just one second. 
Consider the predicament and the decision Pilate has to make and is facing. If we think about this in a modern context, it makes no sense. And even actually in an ancient context, it doesn't make any sense either. When Pilate first takes Jesus back to the Jewish accusers after this story, he straight up says, I find no case against this man. And upon when he first entered the scene, Pilate is trying to get the Jews to take him back so that they'll, they'll charge him under Jewish law. He doesn't want anything to do with this. He's probably heard about Jesus. He talks with Jesus. And by the end of the encounter, he knows Jesus is innocent. He knows Jesus is innocent. Hasn't committed any crimes. Yet still, he ultimately orders Jesus to be flogged and crucified. Imagine if in a court case today, I don't know if there are any lawyers in the room, but if there are, just imagine if you go before a judge and a jury and the entire jury finds the defendant innocent. He's accused of a crime, did not commit the crime. He's proven you know, unanimously innocent. But then the judge decides, no, you still need to go to jail for life or be executed. Like that is exactly what's happening in this story. Pilate, though, without, you know, it's not defensible, but he's the one who, you know, is the one who sees that Jesus is innocent. No one else thinks Jesus is innocent, but they decide, Pilate decides, well, I've got to make a decision here. And probably one of the strongest truths at work in John's gospel that's at work in our own life is at play here. Those with never want to be without. Those in power do not want to lose their power. Those with influence do not want to lose their influence. Those with money don't want to lose their money. Pilate's reasoning is not very different than that which we employ in our daily decision-making because he's the governor of Jerusalem and he wants to move up the corporate ladder and he wants to have favor in the sight of the emperor. But even more, he doesn't want to lose or do anything to mess up what he already has. And so he's faced with a decision because he's fearful of the Jews. They are the most numerous population in Jerusalem and a rebellion could lead to you know, a disaster for the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and even more so for his own leadership. And so he's put in this conundrum. It's actually a pretty prevalent conundrum for ourselves. It's either sacrifice his integrity and not do what's right or do what's right and risk everything. He can either see Jesus, an innocent person, be killed so that he can keep his power and try to keep the peace, or he can recognize that Jesus is innocent, do the right thing, and threaten rebellion. And so Pilate is forced to make a very difficult circumstantial decision, and we know which one he does. But to be honest, if we were put in the same situation, I can't say for sure that any of us would do any different. I would hope that we would. I mean, we have high insight. We think really good of ourselves. And I don't mean that we're all bad people. But we're all put in situations every day to choose between something that will protect us and something that will cost us. We often choose to do that which will preserve our own self-interest. Think about it. Pilate was faced with a decision that was gonna cost him everything. If you were placed in a similar situation where everything you worked for, everything you'd acquired, everything you built up for yourself and your family was on the line, what would you choose? And this is the type of decision affecting us in a lot of different ways each day. It seems, you know, what, what if you're in your office or your school and somebody makes an inappropriate joke or says something cruel or, or rude or mean about a coworker or a friend or another student and you join in or you sit passively and do nothing? I mean, 
would you stand up for that person if you knew that it meant you would sacrifice your status within your company or within your school? Would you stand up for that person if you knew that it would, might cause you to be an outcast or ridiculed? You know it's the right thing to do, but are you willing to do it? Do we buy certain things or do certain things because we think they will help us get ahead to become part of the social elite, all the while knowing how the Bible views excess frivolity? We're offered a chance to excel or succeed, but it's gonna cost somebody else. And we know that if we do something, it will harm somebody else. Do we do it because it will help us? Or do we not out of love of the neighbor? Have you ever uttered the phrase, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will as justification for our own action? Let me ask it another way. If the Lord called you to do something or to serve in a new way that meant you had to sacrifice something you cared about, or that you had to give up of your time, or your money, or the things that you thought were most valuable, but you knew it was God calling you to do it, would you do it? The biggest piece of irony in this whole story is that Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? And I just wish Jesus would say, you're looking at it. (laughs) I'm right here, I am the truth. The way I lived and taught is a testament to the truth of God. Literally, the whole reason I'm here is to tell you what is true. Listen to my voice, and you will know what is true. But despite having the truth right in front of him, Pilate looks at Jesus and condemns him in order to preserve himself. You want to know something that's true, my friends? Jesus never said being a Christian is easy. We have to daily pick up a cross and follow the Lord. Jesus said that when we are to love, we are to love all people, even our enemies. Those things are true. Jesus said that to be greatest, you have to be a servant, not out for yourself, but for others. And that truth is more than just knowledge or right thinking for John, and especially for Jesus in this book of John. For Jesus, truth is a stimulant for faithful living rather than just contemplation. The truth is not just something we think about, is something we do. And Jesus came to show us how to do that. Jesus' life throughout the Gospels is teaching us how to live based on what is true and the realities of God at work in our lives. And so the reason we have this text today on Christ the King Sunday is because today we can testify that God is the Lord of our lives and nothing else. As a community together, we say Christ is King of all, And that our decisions in life are not made based on what we want for ourselves. We are Christ followers. We are not self-followers. We are not culture followers. We pick up a cross daily and follow Jesus. And that sometimes, my friends, is costly. And on this last Sunday of the Christian year, we look back on our last year and we say, who was the king of our lives. Was it success? Was it money? Was it opportunity? Was it desires? Or was it Christ? And if your answer is like mine, something other than 100% Christ, then together as a community this morning, we can admit our selfishness and ask for forgiveness. And we begin praying that next week as the year starts anew, we will be better than we were last year. Christ's mercies are new every morning. And if you, like me, are a sinner 
and have put other things before God and have had idols in your life, if you've made decisions that you know were not the most God-centered, that were not most in line with the will, let us be a church then who today reclaims the truth that Christ is king. Not culture, not success. Our only success that we celebrate is success that's achieved in Christ. May we be the church willing to lay down our lives and sacrifice of ourselves rather than sacrifice others for ourselves. And may we be the church that says, not our will, but yours. Because Christ is king of all things. And together we pray to seek after the Lord with our whole heart, to lean not on our own understandings, to acknowledge God in all that we do, and God will make our paths straight. So this morning, as you reflexively look on your past year in life, what was king? Who was king? If you're like me, we got work to do. But God's sanctifying grace is at work in each of us now and always. And I have hope for the future. I have hope for us as a church. I have hope for us as sisters and brothers together, knowing that God continues to work in our lives to make us the people God wants us to be, even in the difficulties, especially in the difficulties, that God is at work in our lives now and always. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are king and that your end on earth was not the end of you on earth. As we remember this story in this text, we are reminded that we too often value position over your will. Together as a church, we repent of our wrongdoings We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. So forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.